Welcome to Post Game with Paul Golden, a sports and faith podcast. I'm Tim Vanelli. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest is World Series Most Valuable Player, Scott Grotius. The former All-Star third baseman describes playing on the 1998 New York Yankees, considered one of the greatest teams of all time. In addition to sharing memories of his time in the Bronx, the three-time World Series champion details how God used his mom's cancer to begin his walk with Christ. You'll be encouraged as he talks about his faith, family, and post-career activities. And now, here's your host of the Post Game Podcast, Paul Golden. Hey, it is great to have one of my heroes growing up as a big Yankee fan, uh, Scott Brocious, on the Post Game Podcast. So, Scott, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me on. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Hey, let's jump right in. People that are Yankee fans would remember your incredible run with the Yankees, but in particular, your 1998 season. Just describe for you personally that incredible season of 1998. Yeah, pretty amazing year. You know, I kind of at the at the end of that season, I, I kind of joked that if I if I'd have written, you know, a book ahead of time, I would have left a, a chapter or two out of this thing. It was it was truly kind of a storybook season. You know, coming off of uh, for me, what was a real tough, tough year in in 1997 in Oakland. Um, not really sure what my future was going to be after after that season. You know, the trade happening, um, going from a last place team to the Yankees, and just getting the opportunity to be a part of of, of that organization and, and that team. That that um, you know, I kind of just jumped on the train at the right stop and and was part of something you know pretty special. And and uh, obviously that first year was uh, an amazing first year for sure. For those who are into stats, you batted exactly 300 that year. You had 19 home runs, uh, almost 100 RBIs that season. Uh, you went on to win an All-Star. Not only did the team win the World Series, but you were named the most valuable player of the World Series. Like you said, how do you describe the feeling of that year? Yeah, I, honestly, it was just... Um... So, so much about that year, you know, just, just beyond baseball, you know, too, that, that um, just, you know, again, coming off such a, such a bad year, the year before to, to come into a new organization, to be a part of, of, of such a, um, such a storied franchise and then just be a part of a great team. But, I, but I think one of the things that I enjoyed so much about that team and, and all, all my years in New York is, is we won, but I, I felt like we did it the right way. We, we had a true team. Guys got along. Guys were really focused on team first type of, you know, just attitudes. And, and it was it was a real good team. You know, um, you know, I, I you know, you talked about some of the some of those those numbers. And, and I hit basically eighth and ninth in the order that year and had close on, you know, 98 RBIs. So that says something about how good that lineup was, how many guys were getting on base you know, throughout the whole lineup to be able to, to do something like that. And we really were kind of a complete package. We had starting pitching, we had relief pitching, you know, hit, hitters, um, you know, we could, we had, we had power, but we also had the ability to manufacture runs, which I think is really huge, especially in the postseason is, is not being just relying on just, you know, one aspect power only, but being able to, you know, move runners, steal bases, do things like that. That team, the 98 Yankees team, is considered one of the greatest teams of all time. You finished 125 wins, 50 losses. Yeah. You only lost two games in the entire playoffs, right? You swept Texas. 
you lost two to Cleveland and then you swept, it was almost like a vacation there in San Diego. You swept the Padres yeah. win the world series. I mean, it's like you said, a Hollywood, Hollywood ending that is just amazing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think as you know, with the regular season going the way it was, there, there's no question. There's a sense of, you know, you, you win 114 games or whatever it was in, in the, in the regular season, then anything less than winning the world series may not be viewed as a successful year. And so, you know, going through and, and, you know, really the, the pivotal, obviously playing Cleveland in the second round and being actually down two games to one. Um, and we had that pivotal game in Cleveland. And, and once we won that game, it was kind of like no stopping us at that point. And we never lost a game for the rest of the postseason. And you had a big role in that. I think game three, you hit not one, but two home runs uh, to clinch that win and uh, to kind of settle the argument, who's the greatest closer of all time. It was not Trevor Hoffman, but it is your teammate, Mariano. Yeah, it was, you know, it, it's funny, you know, when that series was over and, and I mean, it was, it was wonderful to be named the MVP, but uh, again, so many guys played huge roles that, that, that you could have picked anybody, especially in a four game series, you know? Um, but it, it was, it was truly kind of the, the childhood, you know, when I grew up in the backyard, that's what we did. We were trying, you know, playing wiffle ball and, and, and whatever, and, and trying to hit a home run to win the world series and, and all these type of things. So to have some of those things actually, you know, take place really did feel pretty storybook. Scott, did you watch any of the ESPN, the captain, uh, mainly about Jeter, but it's really a kind of a chronicle of the Yankee dynasty of the 90s. Did you watch that? What, what's your take on that? No, I did. I, I did have a chance to watch it. And it was interesting. You know, it's I think when, and one of the things that Derek mentioned, you know, in there is he he wished he had the ability or could have like enjoyed the moments maybe a little bit more as you're going through it. But you're you're constantly just pushing towards next, next, next. And I think that's one thing, you know, now distance or time from the game starts to to give you a little bit as you start to not that you don't, but you really, it starts to settle on you just like how special those times were and how hard it was to, to go to four straight world series and, you know, win three of those and be a game away from winning all four. And it's, it's, so, so you, you start to look back and you have appreciation as you're going through, but as you're separated from it, the appreciation grows more and more about how special it was. That 1998 team, Jorge Posada behind the plate, Tino Martinez, Chuck Knobloch, Scott Brocious at third, a guy named Derek Jeter at short, Chad Curtis, Bernie Williams, Paul O'Neill in the outfield, uh, Daryl Strawberries or DH. And then you got the bench like Joe Girardi, Shane Spencer, Tim Raines, Luis Soho. And then yeah. your starting pitcher, I mean, El Duque, David Wells, <laughs> David Cohn, Andy Pettit. I mean, you guys were loaded. And yeah. I didn't even mention the greatest closer of all time, Mariano Rivera. Right. And then you, you had Mike Stanton and Jeff Nelson as your setup, your lefty righty combo Mendoza. I mean, it, it really, truly was, it was a complete package. The team you, you look and, and our pitching always kept us in games and, and um, yeah, we were, we were, we were deep. You had, you know, Chili Davis, you had switch hitters, Tim range, you had, you know, Posada, Bernie switch hitters. So you always had balance in the lineup. Um, it was pretty special. Not to mention Joe Torrey and Don Zimmer on the bench. It's a great all-around crew. Right. The parade, Canyon of Heroes down in New York City, ticker tape parade. What was that experience? Oh, man, to see that for the first time. I mean, these are things that you hear about, you watch on TV, you know, and, and you just go, wow, what would that be like, you know, to be a part of it? 
um, and then you do it and you're just, you just can't believe when you, when you're going down and it's not just the, the ticker tape and everything, you know, falling on you, but then you, as you're going down the canyon, you look on the side streets and people are just stacked up for blocks just to try to get a, to be a part of this thing. And, um, I mean, you know, it when you get there, you realize how, how big, you know, the Yankees is and winning in New York is, but when you, when you see the parade, you start to be able to put that a little bit more in perspective of, of, um just how big it is you did three of those parades almost four during your time in new york you had a great career in new york you caught uh you were you caught the final out of david Cohn's perfect game in 1999 you also won a gold glove you're you won three world series and were an all-star so that that's a great that's a great four or five years in the in the bronx no question about it you know and, and one thing that i was taught i had a great manager in the minor league jeff nelson um, and, and, um, one of the things that he, um, always talked about is you become a better player when you play on a winning team, you know, um, in other words, you can have good years on a bad team and nobody notices and you can have a good year or an okay year on a great team. And, and, and people notice winning is that that's what it's all about is, is winning. And so, you know, for me, all the other stuff that came with it, I mean, it was, it was all about the dog piles at the end of the year, you know, and, and all the work from spring training on the off season and everything to get to those moments. And when that last out is made and you dog pile, you just, it, it's obviously it's all worth it. And, and you just, you know, it, it, it's, it's such an obvious thing to say, but the game is just so much more fun when you're playing on a winning team. We're here with Scott Brocious, all-star, three-time World Series champ, World Series MVP. He's on the post-game podcast. You mentioned it earlier. You got drafted by the A's. You're a West Coast guy. You came up through the system, played with them for several years. Kind of on a bad team, not to be disrespectful, but you were traded to New York for Kenny Rogers. And I'm not the singer, not the chicken, <laughs> but the pitcher. Right. But, I mean, what does that feel like going from a non-competitive team to the Yankees? Yeah, I tell you, it was honestly, uh, um, it was that off season was a very interesting off season for me, no question. Um, and, and as I said before, kind of some bigger picture things too, just personally, as well as professionally, um, that last season in Oakland was, was just a miserable season. Um, didn't play well, was injured, tried to play through some things, had a knee surgery, kind of rushed back from it to try to salvage some of the season and, and probably came back a little too soon and, and just nothing went well. And, and, um, so the off season, I knew a, most likely a trade was coming. That's just that that was kind of in the works and and probably had been traded the year before if I'd have been playing better and was healthy. Uh, but New York was never a part of the conversation. Um, but all the teams I'd been hearing, um, the Yankees were not one of them. So when the trade happened, it was initially kind of shock, like. The Yankees, like New York, um, but then once the kind of you know literally just once the dust settled, we just kind of my wife Jennifer and I sat there and we're like, wow, it's the Yankees, you know, going to New York, and and so um, yeah, so to go from such an uncertain kind of off season, not knowing where I was going to land, to to end up in New York and and get the opportunity when I came over, I wasn't sure what their plans were for me if I was going to be you know the everyday third baseman or you know play. Um, kind of a just you know a role like I did at some points in in Oakland, um, but to come over and, and yeah just get the opportunity to settle into the lineup and play every day pretty pretty awesome move for sure. And that you did you played 152 games that 1998 season so you were a rock there at on the on the corner. 
Last month, we celebrated the 21st anniversary of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. Scott, where were you that day when you heard the news? Yeah, we were we were in New York, of course. Um, the team was home, and um, we we lived up in White Plains, so we, I was north of the city um, and just at the house. And so, you know, we'd played the night before, and and you know, being on the the kind of the the swing shift that baseball players are, I was still in bed, you know, in the morning. And but Jennifer and the kids were were back in Oregon as school started and things like that. And so Jennifer called me um, and uh, picked up the phone in the morning. She goes, you have the TV on? I said, no, I haven't turned it on. She goes, you need to turn it on. And I said, what's going on? And she goes, it's chaos out there. And so that's kind of how, honestly, I found out. And so we again up in the up, you know, kind of north of the city. So we weren't right in it. But uh, yeah, just kind of. Um, a shocking, obviously, um, pretty surreal morning for sure. And as great as uh, baseball is, America's pastime, uh, events like that certainly put things in perspective of what's truly important, life and death. Yeah, it does. It, it's, it's, it stops everything. I, you know, number one, it was it was a hard kind of a everything. I mean, you're, you, you, for, for me personally, it was kind of a hard, lonely time. I just wanted to get home. I wanted to be around family. You, you just, you just sort of want to hunker down. Of course, that wasn't possible because, you know, everything was shut down. Um, but then, yeah, then you start thinking about baseball and you put that in perspective and we're like, they're, what we're doing has, there's just no importance to what we're doing at all. It's all about, you know, the, everything that's going on down in the city. Um, and so as, as time went on the first few days, obviously we weren't even going to the ballpark. We were told to stay home. And, and, and so it was just this real quiet kind of scary time. And, and the, the first day that we drove to the ballpark, it was just the oddest thing to drive the freeways of New York and have no cars on the road. It was just so odd. No, nothing in the air, nobody, you know, on the road. It was just, really kind of a, a crazy kind of a feel. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the things that we grappled with was like, what are we doing? Like, why are we playing? What's, you know, this is so much bigger than baseball. Why are we even thinking about coming back and start playing? But I think we began to realize, and especially once we started up again, and even in Chicago, when you saw the reception in Chicago there, we started to understand that this was going to, you know, baseball was going to be part of the healing process, that it was going to be that step towards getting back to whatever a new normal could be. And then even in New York itself, it was, if it was just three hours for people to kind of put away all that stuff and watch a ball game and, and just kind of um, just take a break, so to speak from that. Um, we knew at that point, we understood that, that we needed to be part of that process. You referenced your family, Jennifer, how, how old were your children at the time in nine 11? Uh, they were young. Yeah, they were, you know, 10-ish, you know, kind of 10, 8 or, you know, and, and 5 kind of right around there or not, you know. So they they were, my oldest were kind of old enough to understand a little bit of what was going on, but not totally grasp and, and comprehend that, you know. And, and so that was always, a September's were always kind of a tougher month for the family anyway, because we were apart as the kids were back to school. Um and so I think we were just all at that point kind of longing for when can we get together again and when can we be together? 
it's neat that your kids were old enough to remember seeing their dad play in the Bronx. And uh, now I'm, I'm assuming married and any grandkids in the Brocious family? We are, we are definitely in that mode now. So we, we have three grandkids and, and two more due here at the end of October or, or in, yeah. So in, in November. So, yeah, so we are, we're well on that path and, and uh, kind of loving this portion of life for sure. Well, congratulations. That, that's wonderful. Uh, this is a sports and faith podcast. We talked about a lot about your career and we could probably spend hours talking about 99 team and the 2000 team and almost winning it again, four in a row in 2001. But what I really want to talk about your faith story, but where, where, and when did you realize you needed a savior and you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I kind of, I, I grew up, I, I didn't grow up in a family um, in, in the sense of we didn't go to church every week. Um, I kind of, I, I understood and, and, you know, as I grew up, kind of was one of those guys kind of believed in God, so to speak, but, but saw, really just kind of saw God more as this kind of far away you know, eye in the sky that you want to do the right thing because, you know, uh, you don't want to get on the bad side, you know, that type of a deal. Um, but didn't really understand kind of the personal nature of, of a relationship, um, you know, with Jesus. And, and, and so it really honestly wasn't, it was just kind of something that over time when I was in college, um, started to, you know, just talk with guys, had a roommate that was a Christian. We, we'd had conversations, but I spent a lot of time kind of on the fence, you know, kind of looking over the fence, but not sure if I really wanted to jump in, not understanding what that all meant. And I think for a lot of people, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you look at it, is it, it sometimes it takes an event. And, and a lot of times that's in a negative event in, in your life to kind of change your perspective and, and help you understand. And for me, that was uh, my mom when she was diagnosed with cancer and kind of the, her the, that time. And then ultimately um, when she passed away uh, from cancer. And, and so just had a, honestly had a moment um, where I was back in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, That's where I'd been playing in the off season. Um, and my mom was out in California and kind of got the phone call that said, hey, she's not doing well. It's probably time for you to, to, to get back here. And so flew out to California, got to the hospital. She's at the Stanford Hospital out there. And um, after, after being there, we had a doctor come in and essentially said, you know, her time was short, that this was a Thursday and saying that she probably wasn't going to make it through the weekend. And uh, so leaving, you know, leaving the hospital, kind of gathered myself, went back to the house, showered, just kind of cleaned up and, and came back to the hospital a few hours later. And my sister met me at the front of the hospital and said, mom died while you were gone. And so just, uh, the, I think the thing that, that remember that, that I, that I felt more than anything else was kind of a panic, like this, this sense of like, and so I just started kind of almost running to get to the hospital, to get back to, to where she was. And so I'm just kind of blowing through these doors and getting back to the, to, to this, um, the cancer unit. And as I'm going through these double sliding doors out for I don't even know why to this day they would be there, but out comes this mom with a brand new baby. And it just made me stop kind of dead in my tracks. And I just literally just kind of heard this voice. And it was like, it's okay. You know, with her death, she has new life. And then that's just literally what I heard. My mom did grow up in a Christian home. My my grandmother actually married my parents. And so um, so so there was a background there. And um 
And so the thing that I remember, the pain, everything was still there, but the, but the panic, that sense of panic was just gone. There was, the, there was a piece um, that just, I, that I just kind of realized and I came back and actually after, after the funeral and everything came back home to, to Huntsville because I'd been talking with a guy named Rocky Coyle, who was the chapel leader for the Huntsville Stars where I was playing. And, and so we had a good relationship and spent a lot of time together. And he'd been talking to me about, you know, this personal relationship. I came back and told him what happened. He goes, he goes Scott, you got to understand now you have to know, right? Like you have to know that this, that this is a personal God and not just this, you know, um, eye in the sky kind of God that I saw him as I go, no, hundred percent. I couldn't at that point. And, and so just sitting in his Bronco at that point made that commitment. Um, just understanding that, yeah, he, this is, this is a God that wants to have a personal relationship with us. And what year was that? When did that happen? That was back in 19, gosh, that was the off season of 1989. So yeah. interesting doing these podcasts, interviewing different athletes and coaches. There's always some form of diversity either on the field or off the field that God uses either to break people of their right. pride or sin or to bring people to himself. And I think God used, unfortunately, the loss of your mom to, to get to the point that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life to heaven. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's, that's one of the things, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, when it comes to even on the baseball side, when I, the, the move from to Oakland to New York, I think there, there's a lot of faith things woven into that as well. As I said, the, um, you know, the year before in, in Oakland, it was, like I said, it was a struggle. It was a struggle on the field, but it was a struggle off the field. Um, you know, it was the first year that, that as a family, we were separated a little bit more with the kids going to school. I was struggling with that, struggling with, again, how I was playing. But then as these trade rumors were, were coming up, um, I felt like I really wanted to have, try to have control over um, some of this. And, and so to the point where like the Mets um, at some point had been kind of rumored and my agent called me during that, my last year, 97 in Oakland said, Hey, you know, the sounds like I said, uh, I'm like, please do whatever you can. I don't want to play in New York, do whatever you can to, to not let this happen. You know, just really trying to be in control. And that's where I think God has a great sense of humor sometimes because, uh, again, so the, the whole trade, um, but I came, I came home in the off season and Jennifer and I sat down and we, as we were just talking and processing this whole thing, one thing's, you know, I came to realize I'm like, I can't keep playing like this. Like something has to change. I either, something has to change or I got to stop playing because I'll never go through another year like this. And then I think that's where I kind of got hit with that little voice again. And it was like, you know, you've given me everything except for baseball, you know, and, and I'm like, yeah. I, and then I came to realize that, you know, yeah, I'm the guy standing in the box. I'm the guy get, trying to get the hits and I'm the guy, you know, but it was just kind of this, just let go, just let, let's just let go and see what can happen. And so um, again, that's where I think, you know, I don't know whether I, I, I just, I, I think he has a sense of humor because then I get traded to the Yankees, which again, New York was probably the last place that I, that I would have gone and it ended up just being the greatest move of our life, just both in terms of on the field and off the field. We loved our time in New York. We, we loved living out there. 
Um, and then, of course, the, you know, we talked about 98, everything that happened on the field and, and beyond. It was just truly storybook. And I think, you know, the message is sometimes that if, if we could just like kind of let go and give up control, he's got better plans for us than even we could think for us that we even have for ourselves. Like I said, if I had written the story, I would have left a chapter out and, and, and he filled those chapters in. That's a great spiritual truth. That's that's excellent. You, you mentioned Rocky, a baseball chapel chaplain. Uh, we also have the influence and friendship of uh, George McGovern. And I'm assuming you were active when you're in New York. What? But what role did Chapel and a guy like George McGovern play in in your life, but also in the life of Jennifer? No, it's huge. I mean, you know, baseball chapel is huge. And number one, you know, that was the other part about coming to New York is, you know. For, for me um, in Oakland, I didn't, we didn't really have that. Uh, we had a great chapel leader in, in Oakland as well, but in terms of guys to really hang with, the, the guys that, that shared kind of your beliefs and things like that, um, didn't really have that, that group. Um, but coming over to New York, all of a sudden you look around and you're like, wow, this is incredible. You know, where like in, in Oakland, chapel might have been like five guys and 20 guys not in chapel. It was just the opposite in, in New York. It was everybody was there. And it, Baseball is so fast. It doesn't sound, it doesn't seem like it is, but baseball is fast paced. You're playing every day. You're playing, you know, 162 games in 180 days. And it's just boom, boom. And you're on the road and you're, you're just constantly going. And so to have that chapel, to have a Sunday where you can kind of like ground yourself and, and, um, and just kind of be able to continue to, to have that kind of focus. And you have somebody like George and, and some of these, chapel leaders out there that, that you're, you're talking with throughout the week as well, too, or anytime something comes up and, and maybe doing events or, or get togethers or some kind of gatherings, even, you know, during the season after a game on a, on a Sunday or a, a Saturday or whatever it might be. I think it's just huge um, to, to be able to, again, to kind of just ground yourself a little bit. Well, God bless those chaplains that like a George that have impacted you and others. I think of that team, Mariana Rivera, solid believer and Andy Pettit yourself, just some great guys. Right. Uh, to win that championship together. What's your favorite Bible verse? Uh, Philippians four, six and seven, for sure. Um, and I think it just goes back to um, just that moment, that moment in that hospital, you know, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, you know, present your request to God and the peace of God, you know, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds, Christ Jesus. And I think that peace is the thing that that really sticks out to me a little bit. It's just, I, I just know that that what I felt at that moment um, couldn't have come from any, any place here on earth. There's, there's just nothing anybody could have said at that time um, that could have probably peeled that away um, like it happened. And, and so, and I think we all, it's so funny, you know, we live in a world that's so fractured now and, and, you know, with social media and different things, people are, are, are so, you know, splintered maybe in, in their beliefs and, and things like that. But really, we, we all kind of want the same thing. We want peace. We want happiness. We want fulfillment in our lives. And, and so, um, yeah, I think that for me, that verse is, is um, the one that I hold on to. What's God teaching you, you know, right now in your own spiritual journey or daily walk? Uh, patience. And I, I fail at it quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I think just patience, like right now, I, again, in, in terms of my, my roles, um, you know, with, with baseball, things of changing, I'm, 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 you know, at this point, I think I'm 
moving past the coaching element. I've been able to do some really cool things beyond playing coaching, got to coach, you know, at my alma mater, got to coach, you know, uh, with the USA, the national teams, um, came back in the game for, you know, three years professionally with the Mariners. So got to do a lot of things, um, on the coaching side, but I think, you know, we, we've come to realize that I think that part now is, is, um, you know, in, in the past, so to speak. And so looking forward and, and just sort of being patient to, to find, to understand what next is going to be and, and what that's going to look like. You mentioned what next, uh, when you left baseball, uh, I think the last world series 2001 was your last season, correct? You're right. Mm-hmm. How did you know it was time to walk away from the game as a player? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think I'd been feeling it a little bit during that season. Um, you know, I think there's, there's two, I know when you talk to players, there's kind of two schools of thought. Some guys would talk about just playing, which I thought I was going to do just play till they ripped the Jersey off of me, you know, um, some guys were like, you know, man, play, even if it's a year too late or too long, at least, you know, and other guys were, or like, you know, just leave on your own terms when you're, you know, even if it's a touch early. And I think I fell more into that camp. I, I, um, and I think maybe some of that falls back to that 97 season I talked about a little bit where it was just such a hard kind of a a miserable season. I never wanted the the game to feel like work again. I never wanted to feel, um, like that. I, I wanted to, um, be able to leave on my own terms on my own timing and my priorities changed quite honestly the kids were getting older and as as we made that decision it was it was uh and it was I don't regret it at all. It was, it was the right decision. It was either we start spending a lot more time apart because the kids, their lives were, were getting more, you know, cemented in, in, in Oregon and we either move or spend more time apart or I stayed home. And, and that was the decision that we made It's time for me to stay home. And so uh, I think it was the right decision. And then next chapter, if you finished up your college degree at your alma mater, Linfield college, and then you end up coaching there, right. And as assistant coach and head coach, Right. Yeah. I actually started taking classes um, my last couple of years when I was playing. I felt like on the road trips, I had this time. I'd been to all these cities before. And 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 so I had these times after the game. So I started just kind of plugging away and and taking some classes my last couple of years and then came back and finished the the, the you know, kind of the January after the 2001 uh, year. And and uh, and then, yeah, I was really fortunate. I I, um, I started coaching was coaching the kids, of course, and all their little league teams and stuff like that. And I was helping out at the high school and, and over at Linfield as well and was really drawn to the college side and and to those guys and this OS don't know that I, I when I when I left playing I didn't know that I don't know that I had that specific goal in mind to to be the coach there but it worked out and and uh, um, just had a great time in my years there at Linfield. Well that's an understatement not only with the Yankees did you have a great run with the Yankees but you had some winning teams there at Linfield won the national championship in 2013. Yeah. So my question yeah. is who's the better manager you or Joe Torrey? <laughs> yeah, not even close. Yeah, Joe's Joe's the man. Um, yeah, Joe's a special guy, especially in New York, because um, he was a great buffer, you know, between all the stuff that 
you know, some of the drama that could happen at times in New York with the front office and, and just, you know, the pressure cooker that New York was. He was a great buffer, but he had that unique ability um, to say the right things to the, the guys at the right times. And, and that gets overlooked in, in today's game. I know it's very analytically driven and things like that. But as a manager, you got to know your guys. You got to know what makes them tick. And um, he had that ability to do that and, and to get the most out of guys. Back in 2007, you came back to the, the annual old-timers game at Yankee Stadium. What was that like? What was that experience? No, it was really fun. It was, it was, I mean, I, one thing I loved about the Yankees still love about the Yankees is their how they keep the past alive. I mean, so when you join that organization, you know, you're a part of something bigger than you and, 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 you know, with all the championships and things like that. So the thing that I remember the most is, is like in spring trainings, I loved when they bring like Ron Guidry and Goose Gossage and, you know, um, just all these guys, you know, would come back. And so the old timer game, now you're on the field with them, which is like really cool. And so <laughs> my at bat in the, in that I remember the most was my at bat was against Goose Gossage and which I thought was really cool anyway, but Homer Bush had gotten a single ahead of me and then stole second base and Goose looked at him and he was starting to get, he was fuming because he goes, you're stealing the second base in like an old timers game. And then he just kind of looked and glared at me and I'm like, he might hit me. I'm like in an old timer game. I'm, that literally <laughs> went through my head. I might get hit by goose right now, but he just threw, you know, he just threw a fastball and, and I was able to put the ball in play. But yeah, I mean, to me, that's like one of the really cool things is you sort of get to step back a little bit and, and be on the field with guys that you grew up kind of idolizing. You're still involved in USA USA baseball. What what exactly is your role with USA baseball? Yeah. My role now is kind of basically it ended this last off season. So when I left the, the Mariners, I, I joined um, USA Baseball and and because um, I'd coached the national 18 and under team a couple of years and I was coaching at Linfield, loved the national teams, USA Baseball, everything that they stand for. And so when I left the Mariners, I took a job as kind of their player development. And essentially my role was two, two roles, the 18 and under team. We were starting kind of a new um, kind of a camp, the P, uh, player development pipeline league. And so it was kind of my job to put that together. And then also just see that as players were working through the USA system, we are trying to kind of um, just have have it all streamlined in the sense so guys were having the same, we're getting taught the same things. And, and so it's kind of a system thing as well. And then um, and then the last part of my job was coaching the national, the professional team that went over um, to qualify for the Olympics and things like that. But uh, when COVID hit, that ended the summer that, that COVID shut everything down, that shut down a lot that I was doing with the national teams. Um, I did go over and coach um, the, the, the qualifier uh, the year would end up being two years before the Olympics when everything got pushed back, uh, but chose to step away from the team uh, for the Olympics um, just due to the everything still with COVID. They weren't allowing families to travel. There was no fans. You were sort of just in your hotel room. And, and I just felt like that wasn't you know, really to be away for a couple months wasn't the experience maybe that I'd look for. So that kind of ended my my time, so to speak, with uh, USA Baseball. We had a recent guest on, Eric Kratz. Was was Eric on that? Was he a he catcher was. for that team? He was. Yes, he was. Yeah, I love Kratz. 
what's your take on him? He's, he's got to be one of the funniest guys. In- he's a great guy. And I think if he wants to, he'll probably manage one of these days. If, if, if that's something he wants to do really knowledgeable, you know, think about catchers as they, they see the game. Well, they, they're great. They, they, because they have to work with pitchers and work with guys. They, they know how guys tick. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, like I, he was, he's kind of a coach on the field. And uh, again, I know he's got, you know, bigger priorities and kids to raise and things like that. But um, I think he's that type. He's that guy that could, that uh, could probably end up managing if he wants to. We'll put, we'll put you down as a reference for Eric Kratz, future manager. I'm a fan. Hey, any closing comments before we uh, sign off? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it's, it's always fun to get on and, and kind of talk about, you know, certainly talk about baseball, but, but more importantly, I think just to see how our, our lives and our faith certainly, uh, weave into that. It's, it's all a part of, of, of one bigger plan. And so, um, great to, great to have a conversation about it. Hey, thank you, Scott Brocious for joining us on the post game and God bless. All right. Appreciate you having me on. Take care. We trust you were encouraged by this conversation with Scott Brocious. If you enjoyed it, we'd ask that you subscribe to the Post Game with Paul Golden Podcast. This way you'll never miss an upcoming episode. And while you're at it, share this podcast with that sports fan that you know. To help underwrite the expenses for this unique sports and faith podcast, simply go to our website, paulgolden.org, and click donate. That's paulgolden.org. Once again, thanks for joining us for Post Game with Paul Golden.